welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolich. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the endocrine module from the General Surgical Curriculum. And the operation or topic we'll be covering today is following on from our last episode, and we're going to be talking about the management of thyroid cancer. So let's talk about the management of thyroid cancer, and we'll start with differentiated thyroid cancer, so papillary and follicular thyroid cancer. The principles of management are to appropriately stage the disease, to remove all of the tumour and any involved lymph nodes, to minimise morbidity and complications from treatment, to be able to evaluate response to therapy, to facilitate post-operative therapies if required, including radioactive iodine and thyroxine suppression, to permit long-term surveillance and to minimise the risk of recurrence. In general, the treatment options for papillary and follicular thyroid cancer include conservative management, surgery, TSH suppression and radioactive iodine treatment. So in terms of conservative management, I'm going to start just by talking about papillary thyroid cancer. If you had a small microcarcinoma, so less than one centimetre in size, with no clinically evident metastases or local invasion or evidence of aggressive disease, and if this tumour wasn't located in a difficult area, so not adjacent to the trachea, not near the recurrent laryngeal nerve, not high grade on biopsy, and no regional lymph node mets, as we've said, then you could consider monitoring or active surveillance of the tumour. Another indication for active surveillance of a differentiated thyroid cancer may be patients who are at high surgical risk because of comorbidities, who are having an advanced age, so they have a short remaining lifespan, or patients who have other medical or surgical problems that need to be managed prior to any thyroid surgery. Some contraindications to just performing a hemithyroidectomy for a micropapillary carcinoma is if the patient has other high-risk factors, such as previous head and neck radiation, a familial thyroid cancer syndrome, or evidence of nodal metastases, as I've already mentioned. So moving on now to surgery for differentiated thyroid cancer. For a micropapillary thyroid cancer, so less than one centimetre papillary thyroid cancer, if you were going to operate on this patient, then you would perform a hemithyroidectomy or just a lobectomy. You wouldn't need to do a full thyroidectomy unless there was evidence of nodal disease. In the ATA guidelines, they talk about tumours that are one to four centimetres in size and are node negative. And for these tumours, the ATA guidelines suggest either a hemithyroidectomy or a total thyroidectomy. And the decision about which one to do is going to depend on a number of factors. These factors basically have to do with the likelihood of there being residual disease in the other lobe. So if there's nodules in the other lobe, you want to biopsy those and investigate them. 
Also, the risk of recurrence and whether or not you think that this is going to be at a higher risk of recurrence and whether this patient may need post-operative radioactive iodine treatment because you can't give radioactive iodine if you've still got a lobe of the thyroid there because that lobe will take up the radioactive iodine and what you're trying to target, which are small cancer cells won't get an adequate treatment dose of the radioactive iodine. So if patients have evidence of invasive growth, extrathyroidal extension, or any preoperative evidence of lymph node involvement or metastases, then you would be wanting to do a total thyroidectomy for this patient. The other thing is that sometimes you don't know about certain factors preoperatively and you may do a hemithyroidectomy and then find out that there's extensive vascular invasion or involved nodes you didn't know about preoperatively. And this may then lead you to suggest that a completion thyroidectomy is performed. And if you talk about that with patients preoperatively, they may opt to have a total thyroidectomy upfront to reduce the likelihood of them needing further surgery. Patients may have concomitant thyroid disease such as hyperthyroidism or Graves and that may be another indication to do a total thyroidectomy. So the last group I haven't talked about is patients with papillary thyroid cancer that is more than four centimetres in size or that have gross extrathyroidal extension or evidence of metastatic disease to nodes or distant sites. And in these situations, you should be doing a total thyroidectomy to remove all of the primary tumour. Sticking with papillary thyroid cancer for a moment, the next thing to consider is whether or not a lymph node dissection should be considered. In terms of lymph node dissection, there's two pieces of terminology you need to know about. The first is a prophylactic lymph node dissection, which is typically of the central compartment, so the compartment six lymph nodes. And this involves removal of lymph nodes without any preoperative evidence that the lymph nodes are involved. If there is preoperative evidence that lymph nodes are involved in any compartment, then this is considered a therapeutic lymph node dissection. So again, prophylactic versus therapeutic. So for papillary thyroid cancer, we know that it most commonly spreads to lymph nodes. And there's a bit of controversy around whether to do a prophylactic central neck dissection when you are doing an operation for a papillary thyroid cancer that's been proven on biopsy. The ATA guidelines say that prophylactic central neck dissection should be considered in patients with clinically uninvolved central neck nodes who are considered high risk. And they say high risk patients are patients with who are men, more than 45 years old, have advanced primary tumours with either extracapsular or extrathyroidal extension, or clinically involved lateral neck nodes. But they say there's no advantage to prophylactic central compartment um, lymph node dissection in low-risk disease, so in patients with small tumours that are non-invasive and are clinically node negative, um, you wouldn't do a prophylactic central compartment dissection. Saying that, though, 
in my institution, and I know in others, um, some specialty thyroid surgeons may do prophylactic central lymph node dissections routinely for patients. And some of the arguments for this is that it gives you more accurate staging information and also information about whether you might offer radioactive iodine and that might change your management. Specialty thyroid surgeons also say that there's not much increased morbidity compared to a thyroidectomy alone when this procedure is performed by an experienced surgeon. It may reduce the need for re-operative surgery, and there was a trial for papillary cancers more than one centimetre in size that showed a four times redu- reduced risk for re-operative surgery um, for recurrences, which are most commonly in level six. And the other argument is that it might lower the post-operative thyroglobulin levels, which will mean that you can more effectively use this to monitor for persistent or recurrent disease. The arguments against are that most metastases are micrometastatic, and it's not clear, given this is such a good prognostic tumour, whether that makes any difference to their overall survival. And there's also no level one evidence, and also that we're moving more and more to using radioactive iodine less and that if you're upstaging patients, we may be using radioactive iodine unnecessarily and not necessarily improving survival in those patients. So what exactly is a central lymph node dissection? So this involves the comprehensive compartment-orientated removal of the pre-laryngeal, pre-tracheal, and paratracheal lymph node basins. So it's basically all the fat from the carotid sheath medially to the trachea, as well as the anterior tracheal and uh, pre-laryngeal, also called the delphian lymph node. And in my experience, this sort of means that you can't perform a capsular dissection. You have to take the tissue more widely and in an unskilled surgeon's hands, it may increase the risk of damage to the recurrent laryngeal nerve and also increase the risk of um, temporary hypocalcemia and hypoparathyroidism. So that's enough on prophylactic central compartment dissection. When should you do a therapeutic lymph node dissection? So the ATA guidelines say that a central lymph node dissection should be cleared therapeutically for patients who have clinically involved central nodes. And also a lateral neck compartment lymph node dissection should be performed for patients with biopsy-proven metastatic lateral cervical lymph nodes. And I recently asked a surgeon which lymph node stations you would remove. So say you have evidence of lymph node metastases to station three, and she says usually you would remove the adjacent compartment nodes. So for example, she said if you had station four nodes, you might remove station three and five, and you'd always remove the central lymph node compartment if there was evidence of lateral lymph node involvement. So let's move on to talk about follicular cancer. So remember that you won't really know that this is a follicular cancer preoperatively. So often you get a biopsy cytology result that tells you that this is a follicular lesion of uncertain significance. And in these situations, you're going to do a diagnostic lobectomy. The definitive histology will then tell you whether there's any evidence of capsular or vascular invasion, and therefore whether this is a follicular cancer or just a follicular adenoma or hyperplastic nodule. 
If it's a benign pathology, then you don't need to do any further treatment. If you find a follicular thyroid cancer that is one centimeter in diameter or less, has minimal capsular invasion, then a lobectomy is probably sufficient for this patient. For patients who have a follicular thyroid cancer that's between one and four centimeters, it's a bit of a gray area. So if there's no high-risk features, so there's no extrathyroidal extension, no metastatic disease, no extensive evidence of invasion or extensive vascular invasion, then the lobectomy may be sufficient. But in patients with higher-risk disease, you may consider a completion thyroidectomy. And for patients who have a tumour that's more than four centimetres in size, that has vascular invasion, evidence of metastases to nodes or distant sites in the body, then these patients should be treated with a total thyroidectomy and they're often offered radioactive iodine ablation as well. Follicular thyroid cancer doesn't spread to lymph nodes, so there's no role for prophylactic lymph node dissection when you're doing a thyroidectomy for follicular thyroid cancer. However, if there is evidence of nodal disease preoperatively, then you would do a lymph node dissection of the involved compartments. The exception to this rule is in follicular cancer that shows Herthel cell differentiation, which if you remember from when we were talking about this, Herthel cell cancers spread to lymph nodes more commonly than plain follicular cancers. And so for these patients, there sometimes is an argument for prophylactic or therapeutic lymph node dissection. Prophylactic is controversial, just like it is in PTC, but in the setting of a very high-risk tumor, when you're doing a total thyroidectomy, you may consider taking those central compartment nodes. And obviously, if there's any evidence of biopsy-proven lymph nodes in the lateral neck, you'd do a central node dissection and you'd also dissect those lateral nodes as well. So we've finished talking about surgery for differentiated thyroid cancer. Let's take a moment to talk about surgery for medullary thyroid cancer. So the surgical management of medullary thyroid cancer, as I mentioned earlier, firstly involves ruling out a pheochromocytoma. So never forget that if you're asked about MTC in the exam. The management of medullary thyroid cancer operatively is a total thyroidectomy and a bilateral central lymph node dissection. The decision about whether to perform a lateral compartment dissection depends firstly on if there's preoperative evidence of involvement of lateral compartment lymph nodes. If that's the case, then you would perform a lateral neck dissection on the side of involved disease. And you would consider a contralateral prophylactic neck dissection depending on the calcitonin level. The exact number the calcitonin should be, I think, is controversial, and I haven't found a single number, but in one talk they talked about if the calcitonin is more than 200, consider a contralateral prophylactic lymph node dissection. If there is no preoperative lymph nodes that are identified to be involved, 
then you would still always do a bilateral central lymph node dissection. And the decision on whether or not to do an ipsilateral lateral lymph node dissection is again going to be based on the level of the serum calcitonin. Again, the number of the calcitonin is not defined as to what would make you do an ipsilateral lymph node dissection. I've seen a number of different articles out there. One recent one that was published in 2020 talked about a preoperative calcitonin threshold of 20 being associated with ipsilateral lateral lymph node metastases, 200 being associated with contralateral, and 500 with distant metastases. So I think keeping that in mind and also keeping in mind that medullary thyroid cancer cannot be treated with radioactive iodine treatment. You want to try to do the best surgery up front that's going to clear the potential nodal disease because we don't have great systemic treatment options for this cancer. But I'd say that these decisions, given there isn't a clear number in the literature, is probably a bit controversial and subspecialized. So hopefully we wouldn't be getting asked these sorts of details in the exam, but just knowing that a higher level is associated with a higher likelihood of lymph node involvement, I think is what we would need to know. So now we've talked about surgery for thyroid cancer. Let's talk a little bit about the medical treatment, which is thyroxine therapy with suppression of TSH. And also let's talk about radioactive iodine treatment. These seem to be a favorite topic that comes up again and again in the exam. So the decision about whether or not patients need TSH suppression or radioactive iodine treatment depends on the risk stratification of their tumor. And I'll just remind you, these two treatments are really just for differentiated thyroid cancer, so papillary and follicular thyroid cancer. So the risk classification of recurrent disease for differentiated thyroid cancer is laid out in the ATA guidelines as a really difficult to follow sort of continuum of risk from low risk to high risk. And they've just got this arrow and on the arrow from low to high, they've got a list of different features that would make a differentiated thyroid cancer be lower or higher risk of recurring. I find this kind of difficult to follow. Um, the previous version of this was that they split it into low, intermediate and high risk. But I think they've changed it to be this con continuum because obviously within those different risk categories, there's variation. But in general, a low risk tumor is a small unifocal tumor with no or minimal nodal disease. An intermediate risk tumor is one where there's aggressive histology, such as extrathyroidal invasion vascular invasion, lots of nodes involved or um, a node that's large in size, so up to three centimetres in size. And a high-risk tumour is one where there's gross extrathyroidal extension, where the tumour has been incompletely excised, where there's extensive vascular invasion, especially for follicular thyroid cancer, where there's large lymph nodes, so more than three centimetres in size, or lots of lymph nodes involved with extranodal extension, and also if there's any evidence of distant metastatic disease. Just to make this all even more confusing, you can also measure the post-operative thyroglobulin level, 
which should reach its nadir about three to four weeks post-operatively in patients who've had a total thyroidectomy. And for differentiated thyroid cancer, thyroglobulin levels and thyroglobulin antibody levels can be used to monitor as a sort of tumor marker to monitor for recurrent disease. But postoperatively, the thyroglobulin value can be used to predict the likelihood of recurrent disease as well. And so in addition to looking at the low, intermediate or high risk of recurrence classification system I just talked about, this can be combined with the thyroglobulin level to help you make a decision about whether patients need additional treatment such as TSH suppression or radioactive iodine. So for example, a low-risk patient who has a postoperative thyroglobulin level of less than one, this is really reassuring and it's unlikely that these patients will need any further treatment. If a patient has low-risk disease but their postoperative thyroglobulin is greater than 10, then that increases the likelihood of them having persistent disease or developing recurrent disease in the future. And so they may get further treatment, even though they've fallen into the low risk or even intermediate risk category. So once you've done the surgery and you've identified patients that are at low, intermediate or high risk of recurrent disease, you need to make a decision about whether or not to give radioactive iodine treatment. And radioactive iodine can be given for three different indications. The first includes remnant ablation, so ablating any remnant thyroid tissue in the neck. And the reason you might do this is to reduce the thyroglobulin to nothing in order to use the thyroglobulin to monitor and detect potential recurrent disease in the future. It also gives you an opportunity to prognosticate because the level of TSH-stimulated thyroglobulin at the time of radioactive iodine ablation is an independent predictor of persistent or recurrent disease in the future. Typically, this remnant ablation treatment is low-dose radioactive iodine with about 30 millicuries of treatment. The second reason to do radioactive iodine treatment is as an adjuvant therapy. So this is post-operatively, and the intention is to improve disease-free survival by destroying any suspected but not proven residual disease. So such as in high-risk patients, you're going to reduce the likelihood of recurrence by treating them adjuvantly. And then the last intention is to give it as radioactive iodine therapy. So this is where you have patients who have residual disease or recurrent disease, and you're going to treat this disease with radioactive iodine treatment. So radioactive iodine basically destroys normal thyroid tissue and malignant thyroid tissue that takes up iodine. And it can only be given if the patients had a total thyroidectomy. As I mentioned, it's good for papillary thyroid cancer and follicular thyroid cancer. But as I've mentioned earlier, Herthal cell differentiated follicular thyroid cancer, only about 15% of these will take up iodine. So you might consider doing a iodine scan preoperatively to see if the tumor actually takes up the iodine itself. And in order to do radioactive iodine treatment, it's important to know that you have to have the TSH 
level high. So you actually want to either stop the thyroxine three to four weeks prior to treatment, or you can actually use an artificial TSH, which is called thyrogen, um, which is a recombinant TSH, which you can give a day before the radioactive iodine treatment. And this is so that there's maximum uptake into the thyroid tissue or into the cancer tissue that's taking up the iodine. Usually a post-treatment radioactive iodine scan is done three days after treatment to confirm that there's a reduction in the signal of thyroid tissue. And as I've mentioned, they often take a what's called a stimulated thyroglobulin level at the time of the ablation. So because they have withdrawn the thyroxine replacement or given the TSH um, thyrogen treatment, you can test the thyroglobulin level and that should go up if there is any residual thyroid tissue or cancer tissue. And that can be used to prognosticate the risk of recurrence as well as just the baseline postoperative thyroglobulin level. So that was a very long-winded way to get around to talk about who you might offer radioactive iodine treatment to. For patients with low-risk disease, so small follicular or papillary thyroid cancers with no extrathyroidal extension, a low postoperative thyroglobulin, no radioactive iodine avid metastatic foci outside of the thyroid bed if they get a whole body radioactive iodine scan, no evidence of vascular invasion for papillary thyroid cancer and for follicular thyroid cancer, only very minimal vascular invasion and no or very minimal micrometastatic disease, these patients are not recommended to have postoperative radioactive iodine. For patients who have high-risk tumours, so macroscopic invasion of the perithyroidal tissues, incomplete tumour resection, distant metastases, extensive nodal metastases, or a follicular thyroid cancer with extensive vascular invasion, or a postoperative serum thyroglobulin that's more than 10, you would give these patients post-operative radioactive iodine treatment. The grey zone, as you may have guessed, is in the intermediate risk group. So in this group, the decision about whether to give radioactive iodine treatment needs to be made on a case-by-case basis, and you're going to want to discuss that patient at an MDT. Some reasons you might consider giving radioactive iodine treatment is if the patient is older, if they have an aggressive histology such as a tall cell diffuse sclerosing or insular type of PTC, if it's a papillary thyroid cancer with extensive vascular invasion, if there's large or multiple lymph nodes, if the primary tumour is more than four centimetres in size, um, and also if there's microscopic invasion of the perithyroidal tissues. These are all factors that are not definitive reasons to give radioactive iodine, but they've been demonstrated to be associated with improved overall survival rates if those factors are present and you give postoperative radioactive iodine treatment. The last thing to mention about radioactive iodine treatment is that it is generally safe, but it's contraindicated in pregnancy and also patients shouldn't have it if they are planning on getting pregnant in the next six months and also shouldn't have it if they're breastfeeding. 
The common side effects of radioactive iodine ablation is treatment of the salivary glands. And so they can develop psilatinitis and also dry mouth or xerostomia as a common side effect. And typically there's no treatment for this if it does occur. So the other treatment that I mentioned is thyroxine therapy to suppress the TSH. And the idea behind this is that differentiated thyroid cancer expresses the TSH receptor on the cell membrane and it responds to stimulation by TSH and this increases the rates of cell growth. So by suppressing the TSH, then you are going to decrease the risk of recurrence of differentiated thyroid cancer. So TSH suppression is used only in patients who are at high risk of disease recurrence. We identify patients that are at high risk using the ATA guidelines, as I mentioned earlier. So for patients who are high risk, you want to try to suppress their TSH by giving a dose of thyroxine that makes their TSH level be below 0.1. For intermediate risk thyroid cancer patients, you want to suppress the TSH, but not as much. So you're going to suppress it to 0.1 to 0.5. And for low-risk patients, you don't necessarily need to give any TSH suppression. You can just maintain the TSH at the lower end of the reference range. So that's between 0.5 and 2. The long-term consequences of TSH suppression include arrhythmias, especially atrial fibrillation, and also the development of osteopenia and osteoporosis. So because there are also risks with long-term TSH suppression – Another thing that they talk about in the ATA guidelines, just to make it even more confusing, is that you can re-stratify patients' risk over time. And you can also re-stratify patients' risk depending on their response to any treatment. So for patients who have differentiated thyroid cancer, who have a total thyroidectomy, and also have radioiodine ablation of the remnant thyroid tissue, they can be classified into different groups. So this includes patients that have an excellent response to treatment. So this is where they have either negative radioactive iodine scan after their remnant ablation, or they have a suppressed thyroglobulin or suppressed TSH-stimulated thyroglobulin after treatment. The next group is that there's a biochemical incomplete response. So where they might have negative imaging after treatment, but they have a suppressed thyroglobulin that's more than one or a stimulated thyroglobulin that's more than 10, or they have rising anti-thyroglobulin antibody levels after treatment. And I've only briefly mentioned this, but when you're testing thyroglobulin, you should always test the thyroglobulin antibodies because anti-thyroglobulin antibodies can interfere with the level of thyroglobulin antibodies. And so if you have a rising anti-thyroglobulin antibody levels, then you might have a falsely low serum thyroglobulin measurement. So it needs to be interpreted together. The next group is a structurally incomplete response. So this is where there's residual structural or functional evidence of disease, such as on the radioactive iodine scan, with or without thyroglobulin or anti-thyroglobulin antibody levels being changed. And the last group is an indeterminate response. So there's non-specific findings on their imaging, maybe some faint uptake in the thyroid bed on their radioactive iodine scan. 
a non-stimulated thyroglobulin that's detectable but low, less than 1, or a stimulated thyroglobulin that's detectable but less than 10, or antithyroglobulin antibodies that are stable or declining in the absence of structural or functional disease. And so if patients have an excellent response, even if they had really high-risk disease to start with and their thyroglobulin level remains low over a number of years, you may consider reducing their TSH suppression after 5 to 10 years of treatment. So let's finish off this episode on thyroid cancer by talking about follow-up. So follow-up of differentiated thyroid cancer, such as PTC and FTC, is usually a post-operative appointment for a wound check and also a check of the thyroid function and baseline thyroglobulin at six to eight weeks post-operatively. In the first year, you want to do a six-monthly assessment in order to check their TSH, T4, thyroglobulin and thyroglobulin antibodies. And at one year, you're going to recheck the blood tests and also do a thyroid and neck ultrasound. And the idea is that you want to combine this with a clinical examination to detect any recurrent nodal disease. If there's any evidence of nodes on the ultrasound, you want to organize an FNA and thyroglobulin washings of the node. And if the thyroglobulin or antithyroglobulin antibodies are rising, then you want to perform other tests. So if you haven't done an ultrasound that visit, you'd organize an ultrasound. But if you have and there's no evidence of recurrent disease on the ultrasound, then you can organize a whole body radioactive iodine scan or a PET scan. For medullary thyroid cancer, the follow-up is a little bit different. You're going to be monitoring the calcitonin and CEA levels, as well as organizing an ultrasound of the neck and cervical lymph nodes. If the calcitonin is low, then you can monitor. If the calcitonin's rising or it doubles in less than six months, then this is an indication that there may be recurrent disease. And you can organize an ultrasound of the neck if they haven't had one that visit or a CT, neck, chest, abdopelvis, or a PET scan. In terms of recurrent thyroid cancer, it can recur locally in the thyroid bed or in the cervical lymph nodes, or it can recur distantly as distant disease. If you have a recurrence or a suspicion for a local recurrence, you want to biopsy that in order to confirm the diagnosis and complete staging scans with either a radioactive iodine scan or a PET scan. Local nodal recurrence in the neck is often managed with a compartment-orientated lymph node dissection. And patients who have metastatic disease are usually treated with a combination of surgery, radioactive iodine, targeted radiotherapy, and even thermal ablation of tumors. And patients with differentiated thyroid cancer that's metastatic can have quite a good prognosis depending on the distribution and number of metastatic sites. In terms of targeted therapies, tyrosine kinase inhibitors can be considered for patients with metastatic disease with radioactive iodine refractory differentiated thyroid cancer. And systemic chemotherapy has traditionally not had a great response for thyroid cancer.
And that completes this episode on the management of thyroid cancer. I hope I didn't confuse you. There's so many different considerations when getting into the nitty gritty of management, especially with radioactive iodine and TSH suppression. I definitely suggest you trawl your way through the ATA guidelines because I think that's really where they're going to be asking us to get our information from for the exam. Once again, please leave me a review, rate the podcast and subscribe. It makes it easier for others to find and I absolutely love reading your reviews. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying!